And so Seventh-day Adventist, in a sense, doesn't reference Revelation, but actually it does. Uh, and it, this is the everlasting gospel. God created everything. There is a purpose to existence. And though there is evil, which arises from men and women's free choice and free will, God will destroy that evil and put an end to it. Uh, and so there's a, if you like, a, a nice circle there, the true circle of life. God is the creator. He created us. He gave us free will. We mess things up pretty spectacularly. But God, through Jesus Christ, has a solution to that problem. And there will be an end. And there will be uh, perfection thereafter. Have you ever wondered why there are so many Christian denominations in the world? While we don't directly answer that question, my guest in today's episode, Dr. David Trim, and I do discuss denominational relevancy in the 21st century, particularly as it relates to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, of which I am a part of. I was particularly interested in discussing the history and meaning of the name Seventh-day Adventist because... We live in a day and age where Christianity is becoming almost completely generic. Now, some might argue that is a good thing, but I wondered if perhaps going back to our past might remind us of the unique mission God has given our church to share with the world in these last days. Now, for those of you who don't know, David Trim is a historian, archivist, and educator whose specialties are in European military history and religious history. Currently, he is the director of the Archives, Statistics, and Research at the World Headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are enriched by my conversation with him as much as I was. Now, while David considers himself culturally British, he was born in India, grew up in Australia, and currently works in the United States. I started our conversation by asking him how his multicultural background helped shape his views of the world and the church. That's also a very good question, uh, and inevitably it does. Uh, one of the things that one learns is that the church is not the same everywhere. Uh, and it helps one to distinguish between what is central in Adventism and what is arguably peripheral. And much of what we get agitated about, worked up about, isn't really central. Um, but there are things that are important uh, and cannot be compromised on. But there are many things that really are cultural and the things that we, in one country, will identify as being, for want of better terms, conservative or, or, or liberal or radical. Uh, some of those attitudes or practices in another country will belong to the other group entirely. And that makes one realize how arbitrary uh, these distinctions are. I think Adventists are all sometimes too quick uh, to label others as being of a certain camp. Um, and uh, labeling is never good, but uh, that kind of exposure to other cultures makes one realize that it's often very facile. And it, it's certainly not particularly helpful. So, uh, just understanding that there's lots of different ways of doing things, um, that there's lots of that there's different ways of doing things right. There's not often there's not just one right way of doing things. There are several ways of doing things that could be effective or efficacious. Also, I noticed when you were um, 
in England, particularly, you you studied and you worked on a PhD in European military history. And I was just curious before we kind of get into the main topic of our, our discussion today, what what drew you uh, into that particular area of study? Um, I was always interested in military history, which is perhaps a little strange for a someone born and raised in a church that uh, at least traditionally disapproved of military service um, but that was just the way <laughs> that was just the way I was so uh, I was interested always been interested in military history um, and I but I was also interested in the history of the Reformation so my PhD was on uh, the period of religious wars that came after the Reformation so that was a nice way of marrying uh, the two interests that I'd, I'd had actually since I was a boy of uh, the, the period after the Reformation and the division of what once had been a united Christendom into different camps, uh, first Protestant and Catholic, and then Protestants divided as well, uh, along with the military history. So that subject brought those different interests together. And, and now that you're um, here in the United States, just tell our listeners about a little bit about what you do now and, and what, uh, what project are you working on now that, that particularly excites you? So I am Director of Archive Statistics and Research uh, for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, which is the overarching uh, organization um, that binds all the other levels of church structure together uh, and provides resources for them all around the world. So I work at the world headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, which is is a privilege and sometimes a burden and uh, often very exciting. Um, So archive statistics research, we we maintain the archives and records management uh, program of the world headquarters. we also collect information and publish it. We collect statistics and publish an annual statistical report. And we also publish the Seventh-day Adventist Yearbook, which lists every uh, organization in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which uh, has a very complex structure. So there are many organizations right down to the level of a local conference, or in some parts of the world it's called a mission Something for those of your listeners who are familiar with the Catholic or Anglican tradition, something like a diocese, a union, which is something like an archdiocese, and then what we call our world division, which is, as it were, a branch office of the general conference in different parts of the world, uh, one or two per continent. Uh, So collecting all that information and then also publishing about the institutions. The Seventh Adventist Church has the world's second largest uh, parochial school system after the Roman Catholic. Um, we have m- around 120 universities and thousands of secondary schools and uh, elementary schools, tens of thousands of elementary schools. Uh, and we don't actually publish all of those because there's too many, but uh, the secondary schools and the colleges, universities we collect, and hospitals. We have hundreds of hospitals around the world, also one of the world's largest uh, religious healthcare system. So all that gets collected and maintained so that we're aware of it at the the world headquarters, but then we publish most of it in the Seventh-day Adventist yearbook and make it available through a website and through an app uh, so that uh, anyone can have access to all that information. Um, And then the research, we do historical research using the archives, we do research using the resources of the yearbook and statistics, but we also do 
survey-based research. Uh, so, for example, just last year we finished a survey uh, in every part of the world, and there were more than 64,000 church members uh, took a questionnaire. So that's an incredible data set and represents the world, literally the world in, in that data because it's Adventists from every uh, region. So that's what we do. Um, at present, uh, I'm involved with refining the World Church's strategic plan. It's based on that survey that I mentioned of the 64,000 church members. Uh, it's also based on analysis we did, research we did of major trends, what uh, strategic planners and futurists and big companies and government call mega trends, the things that will shape the world in the next 10 years or what people think <laughs> at least will shape it. They're not always right, of course. Uh, so we drafted the World Church Strategic Plan last year, and we're working to refine that so it can be approved later this year. And that will be the World Church's strategic focus for 2020 to 2025. So that, that's uh, one of my biggest projects. That's exciting. I'm actually looking forward to attending the uh, 2020 General Conference in Indianapolis and uh, looking forward to bringing Adventology to that uh, conference as well. So uh, I, I imagine that that will be when this is um, kind of presented to the public. Correct. Uh, it will be approved by what's called Annual Council, which is a gathering of world church leaders that takes place every uh, autumn or fall, as you say, here in the United States. Uh, so it will be approved in October, or we hope so, but then it will be launched uh, and publicized. It will be a big release program, a lot of material, so that we, we would like every Adventist church member to know what the World Church's strategic plan is, what its strategic focus is, the goals, the objectives, because we can't achieve any of them without church members. We need church members to become involved. Well, that's a good point to transition, you know, for someone who maybe is listening to this and doesn't know anything about the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, what would you say is the central belief driving the purpose for the church's existence, in your opinion? Well, I think it can be summarized in a text from uh, the book of Revelation, from the Bible, Revelation uh, 14, talks about uh, an angel flying in the heavens uh, and he has a message uh, and that message is to proclaim the everlasting gospel uh, and that really Adventists have identified with that since the 1850s before the church was really even formally established uh, and has stayed with us and I really think it captures it Revelation chapter 14 verse 6 says that there's an, an angel flying in the midst of heaven who has the everlasting gospel to proclaim to all who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, every nation, every language, every ethnicity. Uh, and the message is, fear God, and this is verse 7, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So for that is what Seventh-day Adventists have always been about, and I think still are about, is proclaiming the everlasting gospel, and that the essence of that gospel is to tell men and women, worship the God who created the heaven and earth.
Yeah, I, I find that topic endlessly fascinating. But uh, what about um, the name? You know, that that's something that I think is interesting in, in the day and age we live in today. Um, Seventh-day Adventist, you know, some people... Uh, still get caught up in that name. They kind of uh, think it's a long name or, or, or a strange name. Um, but but tell us about the name Seventh-day Adventist, because I think uh, from your perspective um, as a, as someone who studies history and uh, is well aware of, of our church's history, um, tell our listeners, um, you know, wh- how does the name Seventh-day Adventist support that mission of uh, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to the whole world, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Seventh-day Adventist is one of those interesting terms uh, that actually may first have arisen um, or been used by uh, hostile groups as as a kind of insult. Um, One can think similarly of the Lollards, who were uh, heretics in medieval England in the 14th century, in some ways forerunners of the Reformation. One thinks of the Huguenots, uh, who were Protestants in France, and indeed of the Puritans in England and then later America. All of their names were originally insults that were hurled at them by people uh, who disliked them, and they later sort of embraced. And Seventh-day Adventist uh, the key here is is the first part is actually Adventist. Um, Adventist means one who believes that Christ will come again, that he will have a second coming, a second Advent. It's, Advent's not one of those words we use very much anymore, though in Europe it's still used for the whole month of December, uh, the Christmas season or the Advent season, because, of course, it marks Christ's first Advent. So it, that's that's what people would be familiar with uh in Europe, but so it's it's and the word has kind of dropped out of use. But in the 19th century, it was still very much in use, and so Christ's Second Advent. Uh, in 1844, there was a very large group of uh, Protestants, almost entirely Protestants, in the northeast of the United States. A few people elsewhere, but mostly in the northeast of the United States, who believed that Christ would come in 1844. Now, obviously, they got the date wrong, (laughs) but uh, they put a focus, a new focus on Christ's second coming, which many Christians at the time and many Christians today, Travis, don't believe that Christ will actually come again in the clouds uh, to judge the quick and the dead, as the book of Revelation uh, so graphically describes. They believe that that is a metaphor for the triumph of the church for the triumph of Christian values, of Christian society. And uh, it's it's meant very sincerely, but at times it ends up being a triumph of sort of a, just good works and, and social do-gooding. Uh, it, it loses that truly apocalyptic edge. Uh, so that group of Adventists in the 1840s, and they called themselves Adventists, though they got some things fundamentally wrong, uh, were doing an important service. They were the group that reminded American Protestantism. The Bible really does say that Jesus Christ will come again. Uh, and so there were there was this group of Adventists, some of whom, a very tiny minority of whom, because they'd got the date wrong of 1844, obviously, they, you know, they're tremendously shaken by that. And so they start to think, well, we need to study the Bible more closely. There were other Adventists who just you know, found the whole thing so traumatic. They gave up belief and they wouldn't study the Bible at all, which is a tragedy. But 
the forerunners of Seventh-day Adventists said, no, we've got to go back and study the Bible more closely, find out where we went wrong. And as they did that, they recognized that the Bible teaches that the seventh day is the Sabbath, not the seventh day of the week, that is, is the Sabbath, not the first day, Sunday. Though almost all churches were keeping Sunday. And they actually got this partly by conversation with a very small Protestant denomination, the Seventh-day Baptists. And um, they studied it and said, the Ten Commandments is clear, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Uh, and it's there actually throughout the Old Testament, repeated time and time again. And it's never changed. And so they started to keep the seventh day as the Sabbath. And this made them an object of derision uh, for many in mid-19th century America, who accused them of Judaizing, that is, of adopting Jewish religious practices, which, you know, America was quite anti-Semitic then. Uh, so that was a, seen as a, a terrible thing. Um, and so it's likely that the first people to come up with this term were people who disliked these Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventists and said, well, you people, you're just Seventh-day Adventists. But it actually really accurately describes the two absolutely fundamental pillars of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. One, Christ is coming again, and that will end the world as we know it. Uh, it will be the end of what Adventists call a, a great controversy between Christ and Satan that began with uh, Satan's rebellion in heaven and we believe will end with his uh, final annihilation and the annihilation of evil at the at the end of time, at the second advent. Uh, and the other part is the seventh-day Sabbath, which is – that brings us back – sorry to be so long in coming back to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. But, you know, the command there is – Worship God. Worship Him because He created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, which is the language of Genesis chapter 1. Those are the things that are described as being created in the Genesis narrative. So in that proclamation, it's pointing people back to the centrality of the extraordinary truth that God was the creator, something that in the mid-19th century in America didn't seem so important. But today, when we're told from all sides that matter just came into existence, uh, that centrality of God as the author and originator of all things uh, is powerful and is in danger of being lost sight of. And, and of course, that is the foundation of everything else. Why do we worship God? Because he is the creator of all things and Revelation 14 points us back to the creation and the seventh day is the memorial of creation uh, in the Ten Commandments it actually says you, know, you should honor the seventh day to keep it holy because on the seventh day God rested from his creative work as described again in Genesis so this is what binds these things together uh, and so Seventh-day Adventist in a sense doesn't reference Revelation but actually it does, uh, and it, this is the everlasting gospel. God created everything, there is a purpose to existence, and though there is evil, which arises from men and women's free choice, free will, God will destroy that evil and put an end to it. Uh, and so there's a, if you like, a, a nice circle there, the true circle of life, God is the creator, he created us, he gave us free will, we mess things up pretty spectacularly, but God, through Jesus Christ, has a solution to that problem, and there will be an end, and there will be uh, perfection thereafter.
Yeah, I, I think that is so fascinating how um, the name literally um, goes from beginning to end. It is a. It literally full... does. It it is. It's the it's the alpha and omega of names, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the uh, founders of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, um, Ellen White. Uh, for those uh, listening, um, she had an interesting statement that uh, I wanted to read regarding the name, and I wanted to get um, your thoughts on it. Um, she says, the name Seventh-day Adventist carries the true features of our faith in front and will convict the inquiring mind like an arrow from the Lord's quiver. It will wound the transgressors of God's law and will lead to repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, that's an interesting statement. Um, how, how would you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, how can a name have convicting power? I think, again, it, because of what it points to. And the name in itself actually <laughs> probably doesn't have convicting power. It actually is, has a power to uh, confuse. Um, as, a, as a scholar myself and someone who uh, deals with information, uh, research, uh, it's very rare that a non-Adventist scholar spells the name correctly. It's supposed to be with a, <laughs> a hyphen between the seventh and day and uh, a lowercase d. Um, because it's an adjective. For those of you listeners who liked grammar, of course, the reason is that it's seventh day is a compound adjective, and so it gets hyphenated according to the laws of English. Um, But almost invariably, you find non-Adventists spell it as two separate words with a capital D. Uh, Interestingly, just this is a complete tangent, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the same thing. Uh, latter day is hyphenated with a lowercase d, um, but this seems to this just seems to be too much for anyone <laughs> who writes about Adventism to work out. Uh, it's very rare that you find a non-Adventist scholar gets it correct. Uh, so it does actually on the on on the at first glimpse, it's a name that just seems to confuse. But if somebody is interested, that is when it will be an arrow that can. Uh, that can convict the, the inquiring mind. Because if you think about it, and if, if somebody would sort of say, well, what, what's going on with that? Rather than just say, um, Seventh-day Adventist, that's a long and confusing name. Um, if somebody's to say, well, why, what is it pointing to? Then they will find that it points to the beginning of all things and the ending of all things. And Ellen White, who you mention and who that quotation is from, one of her most powerful books and, and best-selling books is called The Great Controversy. And it begins and ends with the statement, God is love. And that is the omega and the alpha, the beginning and the end of the story. Uh, and that is what Seventh-day Adventist points to. It points to the beginning. God is love and creates out of his creative instinct and because he loves and wants creatures to share his love and to share love with others and to the end when God will put an end to the suffering that human beings have caused and continue to cause uh, and embrace those who love him and follow him because God is love that is what Seventh-day Adventist does uh, in a world today where the word Adventist is, is not so well understood, it probably doesn't convict the inquiring mind as much as it did when Ellen White wrote those words. 
but it is still the case that anyone who actually gives thought to what is being said uh, will be pointed to the cardinal positions of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but also cardinal doctrines of the Christian Church. Yeah, and I find that fascinating that you brought that up um, because, you know, when you read the Gospels, um, there is an indication many times that that Jesus shares information that um, from a kind of a a, a shallow point of view or just kind of looking at it quickly um, might not convict um, or, or might not even be noticed. But for those who were really inquiring, there would be some deep truth there um, for the true seekers. And so I had never really thought about the name um, from quite the way you, you said it, but, but it makes sense to me that um, you know, it could be confusing to someone who um, is not necessarily a seeker, but for someone who is, is seeking truth, it, it, it has that, uh, that deeper level to it. No, I think it does. Uh, I think that's right. A 2017 Christianity Today article entitled The Rise of the Nuns, Protestants Keep Ditching Denominations reported that just before the year 2000, 50% of Americans identified with a Protestant denomination, but now only 30% do. It went on to say, increasingly, Christian Americans prefer to either identify themselves simply as Christians or attend the increasing number of non-denominational churches that have no formal allegiance to a broader religious structure. Um, As a historian, why do you think this is the case? What is causing this trend uh, away from denominations and toward uh, a non-denominational preference for for Christians, at least in America, but I'm, maybe you have some perspective from from beyond that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually worse than that um, because uh, that 2017 Christianity Today article is based on findings of uh, very comprehensive research done by the Pew Charitable Trust, one of the leading uh, social science and opinion survey-based organizations in the world. And it's not just that Protestants are moving away from organized denominations and into non-denominational churches, but that people are abandoning religious practice or belief altogether. That's the more worrying. But the interesting thing is, and this is what complicates narratives that some people would say to talk about a rise of secularism, because secularism is one of those terms that you know, can be interpreted in different ways. Um Secularism, in many people's eyes, would actually mean a rise of valuing the secular, the irreligious, over anything else. Uh, It would imply perhaps even um, a privileging of agnosticism or atheism, and that's not what's happening. That's the interesting thing. Um, People are abandoning belief in Christianity, but they're not becoming atheists in in large numbers. And I think, actually, if you think about it, that's understandable. Who wants to believe that uh, their life is utterly meaningless um, and that we have no... And this is seriously what uh, a number of the protagonists of atheism like Dawkins and others and Dennett and others would would say, which is that we really have no conscious choice. It's all just a matter of of, uh, electrons colliding with each other and and, uh, consciousness and free will is... uh, are essentially uh, 
if they're just an appearance. So who wants to believe that, you know, I'm just a collection of matter um, that's drifting through the universe depending on how it collides with other electrons? That's not actually a very appealing thing to believe, um, even apart from the fact that it's got significant holes in it. Um, so people aren't uh, becoming atheists and agnostics in significantly large numbers. Instead, what you get is this classic answer that started to appear in the 90s and is now again and again in opinion surveys, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Now, what does that mean? It's a good question, and it deserves further exploration. But what it seems to mean in practice is that people... They want to believe there's some kind of purpose to the universe. They want to believe there's some kind of God or gods or some you know, deities, that there's some kind of afterlife. They believe all of these things, but they've stopped believing in formal religion. They've stopped believing in revealed the revealed truths of Christianity, of Jesus Christ, his, his birth, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection, his second coming. They've certainly stopped believing in churches. Um, and so that rise of the nuns is actually even more concerning for for us who are religious for uh, Seventh-day Adventists uh, than it sounds because it's not just that Protestants are saying well I'm now non-denominational uh, it's people in opinion surveys increasingly are saying I'm none of the above I'm you know I, I don't choose this or that religious group and yet but they still have this spiritual urge and I think Travis, that's because we were created by God, and deep within us is a yearning, a longing for the spiritual. There's, uh, there's a, a saying that uh, we have a God-shaped hole mm. in our lives, and I think that's true. As for the reasons why, uh, I can speak there better to Europe than to America. And to be fair, in America currently, the trend is more is more of Protestants just becoming non-denominational. But the numbers who are saying they're not religious of any organized religion is rising. And that's the direction Europe went in, and America is going down the same road. And I may say, the rest of the developed world is going down it too. If, you know, we may have... Um, uh, believers in, in Mexico and Brazil and who say, no, it'll never come here. It's it's coming. That's the reality of a globalized society in which we all watch the same things, listen to the same things. Uh, in Europe, it's partly a matter of prosperity. Um, wealth and materialism is probably the greatest uh, solvent of, uh, of, of, of Christian practice but not necessarily of Christian faith. Uh, and I think in Europe, part of the issue is a history, a history of that re religion has led to war, which it did, to be fair, in the 16th and 17th centuries, that religion is oppressive, that religion is repressive, that it has no place for those who don't fit into certain narrow niches, and so that religion is oppressive, of LGBTQI, it's oppressive of women, and that it's also got no place in the real world. It's about debating uh, over abstruse matters rather than engaging what's really important. And all of that partly comes out of Europe's actual history. There were religious wars, 
the church, especially the Roman Catholic Church, in the past was very uh, repressive and actually loose. State churches, Protestant state churches in Europe were repressive and oppressive as well, though to a lesser extent. Uh, of course, none of that's the case today, but it does partly come out of that history. But those perceptions, those attitudes that Christianity is not engaged with what's really important, uh, that it's oppressive of people of diverse uh, <laughs> sexualities and genders and of women. Uh, and in America, I think there's an extra factor, which is that Christianity here is perceived as being hostile to immigrants and to the poor, um, which I think is a, actually is a, is a fair point. Um, some of the largest Protestant denominations in America preach a prosperity gospel, Travis. They preach, you know, if you're faithful, you'll have a, a rich, um, you'll be, literally be rich, not in a metaphorical sense, but in a financial sense, which I have to say I don't see in the gospel at all. Um, but that kind of prosperity gospel does, I think, stoke the perception, the fears that, that Christianity is is really hostile uh, to those who are living on the margins, which is ironic, Travis, if you think about the gospels, because where is Jesus Christ? He's with the people mm -hmm. on the margins. Yeah. So I think those those are the things that I see fueling um, this trend. Yeah, and I, I also wanted to get your opinion kind of on, you know, what is the appeal of like a neutral Christianity, you know, a Christianity that doesn't have, quote unquote, a brand behind it. Um, it's, it's the organization. It's And, uh, you know, you see this in other areas of life. This is one of the... Uh, manifestations of, of post-modernity. There's a suspicion of organization and there's a distrust of organizations in general. There's a distrust of the government. There's a distrust even of um, organizations that once were very reputable. If you look at opinion polls, they'll show that trust in the government is much less than 40 years ago. Trust in, say, particular branches, the House of Representatives, the Senate in this country. That trust in the media, trust in newspapers is, is much lower. Trust in doctors and lawyers. People have just become extremely uh, distrusting. And that's true of religious organizations. And so churches have got an ecclesiastical structure and people are saying, no, I don't want that. I'll go to this non-denominational church, which is just a group of us getting together on a Sunday, because it usually is a Sunday, and singing happy songs and feeling good together. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's got all the pluses, it, you know, uh, but none of the minuses that they perceive. Of course, the problem is what happens, you know, if you disagree about something? Um, what happens if you have a theological dispute? Well, who owns the property? You know, there were reasons... <laughs> The church has got organized in the past, mm -hmm. um, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 1850s. We, uh, the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, were utterly opposed to any kind of organization. And then they encountered all these practical issues and difficulties, and they said, right, in order for us to proclaim the everlasting gospel and to get people to worship God, uh, we're going to have to have some kind of organizational structure. Uh, so I think that's what it is. People are distrusting. And again, it comes back to power. Churches, organized churches, denominations are perceived as power structures. And it, to some extent, of course, that's, that's right. But also in America, much less so than Europe today, uh, churches do get involved in politics. Uh, they do take stances on social and moral issues. And so it's easy for people to slip into that 
view of saying, whoa, this, this church really is caught up in politics. Um, I think it's a, one of the blessings of the Seventh-day Adventist church is that uh, we reject any kind of alignment between church and state. Uh, and so we don't uh, make those same kind of pronouncements. We don't get involved in the same way. We do address, Adventists do address uh, social ills and problems, but we tend not to do it through a party political process. But in America, there's a lot of Protestant churches that do. So people see that and they say, this is just about power and it's about hostility to people on the margins and I don't want to be part of that. I'm not saying that people who are attracted to uh, non-denominational churches are uh, against mission, but but isn't the purpose of organization mission? And um, isn't that the kind of uh, glue that that holds, uh, you know, a church organization together? Well, it should be. It should be. But um, I can tell you as an historian, the the truth is that whenever you create some kind of organizational structure, people will uh, get caught up in uh, in defending it, in maintaining it, in upbuilding it, in trying to control it. And so there's always the danger that an organized church will become an ends rather than a means. That's just human nature. And that's you know, what various uh, people pointed out in the 1850s. And one reason Seventh-day Adventists were wary of organizing. But the truth is the benefits, out, the, the positives outweigh the negatives. So is the name Seventh-day Adventist still relevant today, you know, based on... um... Yes, absolutely, because there is still the need for people uh, to worship God who created the heavens, the earth, and and everything. Um, God is the creator, so he is worthy of being acknowledged and praised and worshipped. But also God is love. The way the world is is not the way God intended it. And the solution, to, the solution to it is not abandoning God. It's a return to God, a return to uh, attempting to live by his laws and walk in uh, his ways, even though we know as sinful human beings that's uh, not going to happen all the time, but to try to live as, as Christ would have us live uh, as we look forward to that time when sin will be done away with and perfection will reign. Uh, and if you look at today's world, uh, the message of Seventh Day, which points to creation, is ever more relevant than it has been at any time in human history. Because even a hundred years ago, the idea that um, you could destroy the Earth would have seemed far-fetched to most people. Uh, and yet Revelation talks about punishment to those who, who destroy the Earth. Um, that's what we're doing, Travis. Uh, human beings are raping God's creation, destroying it willy-nilly. Um, so that message is is always relevant. Perhaps it's because human beings always do have that God-shaped hole in their heart, in their soul, and they have a, a spiritual longing. But today, especially, uh, as we poison the very air we breathe and the water we drink, apparently with no concern for the future. Um, the reminder that this is what God created. This has a sacred origin and should be honored 
uh, and eventually will be made perfect, but only after, unfortunately, this world has done away with. That message is especially relevant right now, I think. And so for, for our listeners, you know, to make this conversation a little bit more practical, um, how does being a member uh, of an organized church or specifically a local church that is representative uh, of a worldwide church, how does that help um, uh, people or become an important part of being ready for Jesus? Is, is that connection important? What do you think about that? Absolutely. If you look at the the New Testament, which describes what we call the early church, which is just, it's the people who followed Jesus and the people who they told about the good news of Jesus and who found it compelling as well, and so it spread. It was all about community. If you read the New Testament, I think it's often this point is missed, but if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, for example, it's all about dealing with the practical problems of living as a community of Christian believers when surrounded by a wider community of, of, uh, of in his case, pagans, but of the irreligious today. So Christianity is by its nature a, a religion of community. It's very hard to practice in isolation. We're meant to practice it together with other believers with whom we join in worshiping God. So... The, the role of the, the, the organized church is absolutely central in that it creates that community of believers which strengthens us, even as we strengthen those around us in their spiritual walk, their walk with God, their trials and difficulties, and it enables us more effectively to share that good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on that a little bit, you know, so for you personally— how has uh, being a member of a worldwide church organization like the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, been beneficial to you outside of your career, but just uh, in your spiritual walk? You know, how, how have you um, benefited from uh, being a part of this organization? It points one constantly to the fact that there are things greater than oneself. Uh, and in certain parts of the world, being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian is very easy. One can go to a large church with a... My local church has a membership of, I think, in excess of 2,000. Uh, it's got a pastoral staff of six. Uh, it would be very easy to be comfortable and just think, okay, you know, I've got a team of professionals to do everything for me. Uh, so being part of a worldwide church is a reminder that there are many different experiences. Uh, there are parts of the world where it's one church, uh, sorry, one pastor for six churches, or indeed for 16, um, instead of uh, uh, six pastors for one church. And Christians, I think one of the essences of Christianity is that we're constantly being called to look beyond ourselves. Uh, you could say that in some ways the the... Uh, what underlies the original sin of eating the forbidden fruit is is being focused on self, mm-hmm. selfishness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Christianity, in essence of it, is, is drawing us out of ourselves. So if, if you're just a member of a local non-denominational church, well, that's, that might be meeting your needs. But there's many believers out there, and there's many people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Um, and... 
the only way <laughs> to help those who are like us but don't have this privileged situation is by an organizational structure that can take resources from where it's strong and apply them to where the church is weak and that can take those resources and apply it to the place where the church barely had existed at all so that people can know the good news of Jesus Christ. So being a member of a worldwide church is important to me because it constantly points me uh, to the fact that there's, a, there's something beyond myself. I'm part of a wider whole that's important to me, but also uh, I need to contribute, not just to being comfortable myself, but to a worldwide message that really should go to every nation, people, group, and language, and so forth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal on this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. And if you want to get to know him better, then I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, where you can find links and transcripts to all of our previous episodes. Also, if you haven't rated us on iTunes or any other platform you might be listening to us from, please do it now. It really makes a difference. Also, contact us and let us know how you like the new interview format that we just introduced today. All right, I enjoyed our time together, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Adventology. Until then, Maranatha. Maranatha.